Welcome to AUCD Network Narratives, where we share real stories from our members. I'm your host, J.D. Flores, a self-advocacy discipline coordinator at the Strong Center for Developmental Disabilities and the co-chair for the Council on Leadership and Advocacy. Join us as we hear from inspiring leaders within our network working to make a change. In this episode of AUCD Network Narratives, J.D.'s guest is LEND faculty and Lettercase Medical Outreach Director Stephanie Meredith. Stephanie's roles include creating and disseminating information about genetic conditions and building relationships between national leaders in the disability and medical communities. She is author of Nationally Recommended Understanding a Down Syndrome Diagnosis, co-author of Diagnosis to Delivery, A Pregnant Mother's Guide to Down Syndrome, and Welcoming a Newborn with Down Syndrome, A New Parent's Guide. Listen in to hear more about her perspectives on ethics, genetics, and eugenics. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm excited to talk about this topic, honestly. Genetics is it's a complex issue in the disability field, in the disability realm. And my first question to you is why genetics? I mean, I feel like with genetics, you have a lot of movement in prenatal testing. And so there's a lot of concern that way in making sure that people are getting accurate, up-to-date information about these conditions that have been historically marginalized and making sure that they're not just getting the medical model of disability, but that we're also talking about what life is like and supports and services and all of the different resources that people might need should they plan, if they're planning for the birth of a baby. And so there's a lot of issues going on with that. And I think too, there's the idea that just because you know someone's genetics that you or genetic variation, that you know what their outcomes are going to be. And you can give like a range of different possibilities of people who live, but you can't say for sure, oh, you know, just because you have this genetic condition, this is what your life is going to be. You have to give people like the, a spectrum of different of information. And you also have to be mindful that you're not making assumptions, m- making presumptions about them. How do you infuse your work in genetics into your work in advocacy, right? Because those are like, you know, they're not... <laughs> It's like different gangs fighting against each other, for lack of a better metaphor. You know what I mean? So how do you merge them together to really do justice in your work? And you really just to do justice to yourself, right? Because you owe that to yourself before you owe it to anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, it took a long time, actually, to feel comfortable talking about my... And, and I mean, we talked about this a lot in the Leadership Academy, right? Like, I had a hard time with owning my own identity as a parent and feeling kind of scared that if I presented that in my professional work with genetics, that people would see me as biased. But what I've realized over time is that lived experience is actually a real strength in being able to have meaningful conversations with medical professionals about this, because in general, we've got a lot of them might not be familiar with some of the concepts that we're really familiar with as far as the medical model versus the social model of disability because they don't study that piece of it, but also, you know, they really need our kind of testimonies about lived experience to know what that means and to understand what, like I said before, what that spectrum of life can be. And it's so different too sometimes between 
what they studied in a medical school, maybe especially if it was 30 years ago, than what outcomes are now with access to supports and services and policy. But I think that ultimately, I kind of try to come at every, both advocacy and also working in, you know, genetics that, you know, I think for the most part, people want to do their best job. Nobody goes into medicine saying, gosh, I really want to traumatize somebody today or further marginalize a marginalized group, right? I think people just need guidance on how to get there. And so I think if you look at it in the context of helping people, whether it's advocacy or work in genetics, it's kind of the same thing. See, I think I have a hard time reconciling that in my mind just because of where I am, like personally in my journey of advocacy. Like I don't have any children, so I can't speak to what that's like to be someone's mom and to have this huge pool of knowledge and resource, but also now be living, you know, what it's, what exactly you were studying. But what I can say as someone with a physical disability, where no one is really looking at my genetics, but they're actively talking often about me not reproducing and me not having children, because what that could mean for those children, you know, I have a hard time creating this like empathy vibe for certain folks. And I won't say everyone in healthcare is the same because they're just not, you know, everybody has their own experience and comes with their own baggage of how they do business. I just think it's a, I have a hard time, especially in this kind of conversation, right? When we're talking about genetics, because people have been trying to erase me since my existence, right? And so like, when you had, like when you're talking about genetics, I came home, okay, to be completely honest with you, in college, I read an article where, you know, that professor who, who is for selective abortion for folks, if you can tell if folks are going to be disabled like before they're born. And I asked every woman who I felt loved me, would they have aborted me? Like I had needed to know like where they stood on this because I just think that it gave me, I don't know what I was looking for because no one of course said, nah, we would have got rid of you, baby. Everybody said, no, we would have had you. You would have been in our life. Like this would have been regular. But I think that when, you know, you work in academics and or and at that time I wasn't in this field. At that time I was just a community advocate. I was just someone who knew a little bit about something and was being able to, you know, ask to share their story. I just needed to know more and I needed to understand what I had done, how my existence was just so problematic. And some of that conversation stemmed out of the way genetics was talked about, like the stigma behind it. And so I think that's where I struggle, right? Because I think you're, you're right. I give you that. I mean, I know you and I love you. So I think that it's different when I see you do it. I'm like, but Stephanie is not doing what they're doing. And so I, I think that for me on a personal level, it's hard to, to create that reconciliation of, you know, there is greater good in some of this. Well, and I think for me too, it's also helping them recognize how some of the assumptions that they make are ableist. Because if you look back at the history of eugenics, there was the idea that there was an ideal person, right? Like, and that's in, that's really steeped in racism, right? It's also steeped in ableism. And to say that, you know, there's this perfect ideal person that we're going for. And they used to actually have fairs where they identified the most ideal families. I don't, I was so blown away when I realized that, that that was like a county fair type thing. A lot of the clinicians who work in the field don't realize the history, you know, what they're kind of part of with that. And I have to say, I also tend to be a bit of an optimist in, in a lot of ways. And I feel like, gosh, if I can help them understand what that history is, 
And the reason why to say, you know, you can't even give a diagnosis and just give the say, oh, you've it looks like you've got Turner syndrome or Kleinfelter syndrome without giving someone information. Because if you don't, then the assumption is, oh, this is a bad thing, right? Like that, just the very fact that we're testing for it and you deliver it to me and it sounds like bad news, it seems like it's, you know, it's a bad thing. And that's why it's so very critical for us to get this message to medical providers that it's not enough just to give that information because you're not giving it in a vacuum. You're giving it in a vacuum of a society that tends to be very ableist. And so we need to make sure that we're giving information about those supports and services, life outcomes, the improved policies that are available too, so that people aren't just making assumptions based on, you know, how society typically has done about people with disabilities. So that's where I guess I see what I do as really an education role for clinicians to help them recognize that history. And we actually have a training course for genetic counselors that goes through the history of disability rights and how that's impacted outcomes. And that's one of my favorite things to do because I tell them, look, if you look at the outcomes for Down syndrome in 1970 and 2020, it looks like two different conditions and nothing on that chromosome has changed. It's all access to supports and services and people being given opportunities. I think that's part of why I feel empowered in what I do is because I feel like a lot of times you see that awareness dawn on them and, and they and they really, I think a lot of them do want to do better. Well, you're educating on both sides too, right? Because you're educating people like me who'll be like, no, geneticists are bad. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so you're, you're doing it on both sides. You're not just doing it for the, for the clinicians. You're doing it for the, I would say, average Joe or Jane who, who does work in advocacy and, and, you know, understands that eugenics were real and that the ugly laws were real and that, you know, there have been different ways and methods in which, like I said, people have tried to erase us from existing. Yeah. Well, and there's a real tension between the disability and medical community for a lot of reasons. And one of them is, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you had this institutionalization model, right? And the advocacy movement really grew out of rejecting that model. And that was what clinicians were generally telling people to do. Hey, institutionalize this kid. A lot of times, maybe medical professionals don't realize that that's also what informs some of the genetic testing too. And so it's important for them to understand that. But you're right. I mean, it's about building bridges between the medical genetics and advocacy communities. And so that's what we just did in our prenatal summit in May, where we brought together leaders of different advocacy organizations, AUCD, and we also brought together leaders from medical and genetics communities to say, hey, let's sit down and talk about What are some of our priorities to make sure that prenatal testing is being done in a way that's equitable toward people with disabilities? And they came up with some really great ideas and we generated a report about that. But yeah, it's about bringing people together to have those real honest conversations because we had community conversations where they sat down at small tables and broke bread together and actually had deep conversations. And I think that's so important because I've sat in a space where I, with geneticists who didn't understand that they were implying eugenics, right? That they didn't understand that the conversation in which they they were cultivating in a space that was pro-disability, pro-people with disabilities was, you know, it was, you're alluding to eugenics and you're like really there and you're not seeing it and it's becoming problematic in this space and it's creating all this tension and now no one knows how to really talk to you or approach you because ultimately you know you're a scientist and so there's methods to your madness and no one is saying that you are actively being like no I want to practice eugenics but 
you're alluding to a lot of practices that are, you know, that were frowned upon within the disability community and that are difficult to talk about and stuff. And also just difficult to hear, right? Like you're, it's not easy for me to listen in on like, you would have got rid of me. Like that's hard to to acknowledge and process. Yeah. Well, and I I think that there is, what we tried to do at at the summit too, is set the groundwork in the beginning. So like Kara Ayers, who's amazing, um, she talked about the different models of disability so that they even understood that as a framework, right? And how ableism, and defined ableism for them, because a lot of them, again, aren't exposed to that in their training. And then I talked about some of the trauma that parents experience when they receive that diagnosis, because a lot of times that's rooted in maybe assumptions about their reproductive decision making and also, you know, stereotypes that were told to them about the disability that they're like, that wasn't my life at all, you know? And so there's a lot of trauma that has come with that. And there's, you know, research to back that up. So we talked about that. And then we had these conversations. And I think probably the most meaningful moment to me of the whole event was at the end where, you know, we're kind of coming up with all these different solutions and ideas. And the person to jump up was Mitchell Levitz, who is a wonderful advocate with Down syndrome who's been working with me on these issues for years. And he jumps up and he's like, we need to have an action plan. We need to pull this together and to have, we had in that meeting, the president of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, and to have him in that meeting and to see Mitchell in that leadership role, you could see like that dawning of awareness of, wow, this is a person with an intellectual disability who really has ideas about this topic and is a leader, you know, and and I think that that's really important in bringing people together to see that. For sure. I mean, I think that, you know, any table that we can be at, you know, especially in the healthcare realm, and maybe in the educational realm, every realm, really, because people don't talk about our experiences enough in a way to really create that kind of positive change where it's long lasting. And I'm a firm believer that one conversation can really create a change. That is so beneficial. And I've seen it happen, like, morph in front of me from folks when I have had conversations and talking to, you know, growing up to be who I am now. You know what I mean? Like, it just is. Oh, yeah. It's not. That wasn't the. I was born in the 90s. So, like, the expectations weren't so grim, but they still were very low um, in comparison to my non-disabled counterparts. What needs to really happen to bring together the disability and genetics community is to have, and this was the one point that really came out of this meeting, was to make sure that when they're establishing guidelines, that are about disabilities or that impact people with disabilities, that they bring people with disabilities to the table, you know, that it shouldn't just be, and leaders in the community, you know, not tokenism, like actually have them be partners in that process and in the development of guidelines, because they can inform it, inform what's done in profoundly meaningful ways for both the patients and also the providers. So were you a geneticist before you were a mom? No, and I'm not a geneticist now. I'm actually, my background, I'm the mother of a 22-year-old with Down syndrome, which, you know, we know. Also, I was a writer, technical writer. That's That was my background. And I got involved in genetics when they started issuing some guidelines about the importance of, you know, screen, prenatal screening. And I was like, gosh, we need an educational infrastructure to support these patients if we're going to be recommending screening because, right now, it's really hit and miss. And it pretty much still is whether people are getting the full information they need about a condition when they find out about a possible diagnosis. Working in that and and being Andy's mom, what was it like for you? Like, you know, when it was like, you know, Andy, you know, he has a, he's a homie with an extra chromie. Like, what was that for you? 
You mean when I first got the diagnosis? I think that, so I grew up in the 70s, 80s, dating myself. After he was born, you know, I have to admit, I was pretty overwhelmed and worried about some certain things. And probably one of the best things my husband and I did is we wrote down everything that we were concerned about. And the irony is that like all the stuff we wrote down that we were worried about is not even the stuff that was a big deal. Like the stuff that we wrote, like, oh my gosh, it was, oh, I'm scared that he's going to live with us forever. And now Justin is doing his best to bribe him with a like a big screen TV to stay with us longer because we love having him around so much, but we're like, but we want him to have that independence. I'm the better one at, help, at like pushing more toward independence where my husband likes to have his best friend around. I remember writing down, I was scared people, the kids were going to make fun of him, you know, because that's what it was like sometimes when I was a kid and I didn't want people to be mean to him. I mean, he was so much cooler in high school than I ever thought about being. And I mean, that's not a high bar to be fair, but he was like so cool. <laughs> and, and so uh, the things that have actually been the hardest for us haven't been things that are in part of having Down syndrome as much as you know, getting the supports and services that we need through education or healthcare. For the most part, a joy. He's a person who gets grumpy and, you know, does all the things you would anticipate a young adult does that are grumpy. But so I think, but one of the things that really helped us in that moment, and this is part of what really inspires me to do what I do with education. And I should say now I'm kind of, I'm working on public, my public health and my focus is disability and health. But Part of what really motivated me was the day after Andy was born, there was another mom who came in and she was part of the parent support staff in the newborn intensive care unit. And she gave us the book, Babies with Down Syndrome. And, but the thing that really changed everything was when she showed us a picture of her son on a bike. And for us, we were like, so like life can still be fun. Cause I was only 23 years old when I had him. Just that realization that we we could still do the things that we envisioned doing as a family and that we could still have a happy life. And, and we have, I mean, I mean, we take him and our girls on all kinds of adventures and it's great. Oh yeah. I've seen Andy all the time and I'm, I feel like I know him. I know we've never gotten to really meet, but I feel like I know him. Like he's part of my, you know, family, like, you know, cause you're part of my family. And so I, I feel it, you know, getting to see him grow up in the last couple of years, you know, online and, and seeing him flourish into the, you know, growing up that he is right now. So my last question for you really is if you had one token of advice that you could pass on to either geneticists or other healthcare professionals as they do this work and as they create their own bridges, you know, with different kinds of people, what would it be? Boy, it's hard to boil it down to one thing, but I, I'm, so I'm trying to think of something that covers all the things. But I think it's too build genuine relationships with people with disabilities in their families. And I think that will help inform both including people with disabilities in the development of guidelines, making sure that, you know, so disability social justice is included in their training programs and discussions with people with lived experience and also making sure that families getting a diagnosis receive accurate, up-to-date information about the condition that covers the spectrum of information that they need and not just that medical, that list of medical issues, because that's such a limiting view of, of what, you know, our collective lives are like. I gave you a multiple answer, but I honestly think if they get to know people genuinely, that it does change things. And there is one other thing I do want to add in because of another project I'm working on. 
But I think that the other thing we need to be really mindful of with the racist history of eugenics is to make sure that, you know, a lot of the research that has been done has been primarily with white families who've received a diagnosis and not been inclusive. And so one of the projects I'm working on right now is to evaluate the dissemination of research and the recommended strategies for Black and Hispanic parents of children with Down syndrome receiving a diagnosis. And I think that we need to make sure that we're expanding that tent because it historically hasn't been done. I agree. Every time I see a person of color with Down syndrome, I share them or like celebrate them because it's not what you see often. Um, It's normally just the, you know, white person with Down syndrome who gets all this huge limelight and really is just pinpointed as like, oh, look at this person and they're doing this and this is who they are and this is how far they've come when, you know, it's, There's people of color who are doing the same thing and are existing in the same realm. But thank you so much for sharing your story with me, for for having this conversation. I truly, truly am grateful and appreciate you so much. Well, you know, I adore you. So thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to AUCD Network Narratives. If this story has inspired you to make a change at your center or program, use the link in our show notes for resources and tools to help you lead on. We'd love to connect with you. So visit the AUCD website and click on the submit your story button at the top. We hope to hear from you soon.